Man, there might not be a better way to tee up this sermon than having you guys share about missions. That'll, that'll become clear in just a minute here. Uh, some of you know this about me. I am an aggressive driver. I am way too angry behind the wheel. Um, it's a problem. The Lord is working on me. I'm from Chicago. You guys think traffic here in Denver is bad. It's nothing. Uh, and, and again, I have a problem. The Lord needs to do some work in me. But thankfully, I don't have to drive very far. I work in Littleton, live in Littleton. About the farthest I ever have to drive with a collar on is 15 minutes. So thankfully, I'm still able to be a good witness for, for Christ sometimes on the roads. Uh, but I can't always avoid a commute. Uh, there was a season in my life life where uh, shortly after Orson was born, the only way childcare was going to work out is if I drove up to Thornton on the opposite side of Denver, the north side of the city, uh, to drop him off at my sister-in-law's house, and I would work a remote day at a coffee shop in Thornton. And I dreaded this plan. I was not looking forward to making this drive across the city center during rush hour uh, every, every week. Uh, and the first couple weeks were pretty miserable. I hated the drive and I was pretty upset about it. Uh, but the Lord was faithful to redeem the time. And I'm usually drawn to sports talk radio. I'm drawn to listen to a podcast, but the Lord drew me to simply play some worship music and start singing his praises as I was driving. And, and quickly this hour of the week that should have been one of my most dreaded hours actually became one of the most precious hours of my week. I remember that school year meeting with the high school guys, small group, and asking them, hey, right now, when do you feel the closest to God? And finally, when it came around to my turn, I realized my answer was Wednesday mornings. My answer was when I would poorly but wholeheartedly sing God's praises in the car. And I wonder if it's not too dissimilar for many of you, that you feel God's nearness, you experience his love, you know that he's present with you when you're singing his praises when you're singing in the car, when you gather for family devotional time and sing worship songs, when you come to this place and you sing to our Savior Jesus Christ, you feel his presence near to you. And that would make a lot of sense because we were made to worship God. It's one of the things I've argued throughout this summer in the Psalms. We were made to worship God. We were made to delight in our Savior. And one of our greatest problems, one of the reasons actually we experience so much unneeded anxiety and fear and loneliness and, and emptiness is because we're not praising God. We're not filling our lives up with his worship. This morning, we are concluding our sermon series in the Psalms. We've been in the Psalms all summer long since June 4th. We've been working through some of the greatest hits of the Psalms. And today we're concluding with Psalm 96. That's all about praise. We've been reminding ourselves the Psalms were the original prayer book of the church, the original prayer book of Jesus. And when we make these prayers our prayers, they free up our devotional life to love and serve and trust God as we ought. And we're going to see in Psalm 96 today that we were made to praise God, that when we fill our lives with his worship, with his praise, we see our joy increase, our love increase, our hope increase. So if you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 96 with me. We're going to see three things in particular in our text this morning. First, we praise God because he is the only one who saves. Second, we praise God because all the earth needs to hear. And third, we praise God because he is our coming hope. 
And as I've done all summer, I've memorized Psalm 96 for us. I've encouraged you to memorize the Psalms for your own heart, for your own mind. And I've given you kind of a little snippet, a little argument or reason each week. And if you'll remember all the way back in Psalm 1, I told you that one of the primary purposes of the Psalms is to make you happy, is to make you blessed. And so my only argument for you today, why you should memorize Psalm 96 is if you want to be happy, your life needs to be characterized by God's praise. So memorize Psalm 96 so that you will be filled with joy, so that you will be truly happy. So here's Psalm 96 from the ESV. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation day, from day after day. Bless, bless the Lord, tell us salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. All, he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. Bring an offering, come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The first thing you see in Psalm 96 is that we worship God because he is the God who saves. We've got like a dozen different imperatives, commands in this psalm all over the place. Sing three times, bless, tell, declare, ascribe, repeated three times. Bring, come, worship, tremble, say, there could be nothing clearer. We are meant to worship God. We are meant to praise his name. That is what we were made for. We need to praise him and it's for good reason. One of the, the primary two reasons you'll see again and again and again, if you, if you look at all the Psalms of praise, is that God is our creator and God is our savior. God is the one who made the heavens, who established the earth. We owe our existence to him. And God is the one who saves us. He is the one who saves us from all our problems, our pains, our troubles, our enemies, our darkness, our sin, and even death itself. God is our savior. And all of this is put in contrast to idols, worthless idols that cannot save us. And I know we talk about idolatry a lot. I've talked about it a number of times this summer. And so it can feel a little stale, but we need to keep returning to this subject because it is such a blind spot for us so much of the time. We are tempted to believe that idolatry was the sin of, of an ancient people group, that, that idolatry is something other people struggle with and not us. And yet notice the logic of this psalm. The reason God's praise is not big enough 
is not because people aren't worshiping, it's because they're worshiping the wrong gods. That's why. There's a, a worship leader and, and seminary professor named Bruce Leafblad who defined worship this way. Worship is communion with God in which believers by grace center their minds, attention, and hearts, affection on the Lord. Do you hear those two pieces? I think we're often familiar with the idea of our heart's affection, that we need to love God with all of who we are. And we understand idolatry is when we love something else in the place of God. But do you hear this piece also about the mind's attention? I think so much of our idolatry today is simply that we're distracted from God's worship. Instead of worshiping God, instead of making time for prayer and for praise and for reading the word and for coming to church regularly, we are distracted by other things. There are other idols in our lives that take away from God's worship. And I'm not just saying this is about you. This is about me. I'm distracted in my own life. My worship is not as big as it ought to be. We're distracted by the idol of entertainment of the next show, the next movie, the next YouTube video, the death scroll on social media. We're distracted by regard. We're always pursuing what other people think about us, concerned with put, giving off a good image, letting people know that we're happy and successful and wealthy and wise. That's what we want people to think. And so we're curating our appearance on social media. We're always concerned about what other people think. Or it's the idol of materialism. We're always looking at the thing we don't have. We're always looking at a bigger, nicer home, a nicer car, more, more clothes, whatever it is. We think that's going to make us happy. And so we think that we're not worshiping these things. We think that what we do is, is worship on Sundays, but actually we're worshiping all week long. What has grabbed your mind's attention and your heart's affection? And the last piece that really connects to that is we, we look to these things to be our savior. We look to these idols to save us from the problems of our life. We look to entertainment to save us from the problem of having a dissatisfied life. I'm dissatisfied with where I'm at, and so I'm going to distract myself with another show, with my phone, keep looking at social media, whatever it is, I'm going to distract myself from the dissatisfaction I feel deep down. Or we're so consumed with others' regard of us because we feel deep down there's something wrong with me. There's something broken about me. And if enough people will tell me I'm good, then I will feel good. We think materialism will, will save us from feeling like we're not enough, that we don't measure up, that we don't have enough, that if I just have that nice car, then I'll measure up to the other people at work. If I have that next thing, then I'll be happy and I won't feel empty. And we know that none of these idols can actually save us. We know that none of these idols can actually rescue us from these problems. We need a real savior. And that is why the psalm starts by telling us we need to sing a new song. It doesn't mean literally you need to compose a new song for God every Sunday. We'd be bumbling over our words if we were always singing something brand new. But it's an expression to mean a new experience, a fresh experience of God's salvation. We are told to tell of his salvation from day to day. And that word tell in the Hebrew literally means to proclaim the good news of. In the Septuagint, it's translated evangelize, share the gospel. We say at Trinity every week that we are grounded in the gospel and directed by the gospel. Why? 
because we desperately need the gospel. We desperately need the gospel to remind us that our idols cannot save us, that the only salvation we, that can be found is in Jesus Christ. We need the gospel to remind us when we're dissatisfied with life that the only abundant life to be had is in Jesus. We need the gospel to remind us when we're facing materialism and, and this feeling of not measuring up that the only way we'll be truly happy is if we have the abundant love of God in Jesus. We need the gospel to remind us when we're consumed with what other people think about us that they will never make us feel at home, never make us feel whole and loved. The problem deep down is our sin and our brokenness, and only Jesus Christ can take that away on the cross. We need the gospel. We need Jesus Christ to be our only Savior. And so I don't even know if these three idols that I'm harping on that are really just a big deal for me and maybe not for you. I don't know what your idol is. I don't know what's distracting your mind and taking your heart's affection away from God's worship, but you need to know that your idols can't save you. No matter what the problem is deep down, your idols won't make you happy. They won't make you whole. They won't save you from your pains. You need more of Jesus in your life. You need his praise to be the central feature of your heart. And so only you can answer this question. Where do you need the gospel to apply in a fresh way? Where do you need to sing a new song of God's salvation in your life? You need to think about it. Where are you chasing for a God to save you that can't? You need to look to Jesus. Look back at our text again, verses 7 to 10. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. The first thing we see in our text is that we praise God because he's the only one who can save us. And the second thing we see in our text is we praise God because all the world needs to hear. This is what I'm saying about the sweetings teeing up this sermon. All the world needs to hear God's praise. You hear it throughout this, this, uh, these verses. All the earth, the nations, the peoples, the families of the peoples, the world, God's heart is for every people group to come to know Jesus Christ. God's heart is for the gospel to be preached to the ends of the earth. It's that vision that we saw in our reading from Revelation 5, that all people from every tribe and nation and language and tongue would come to worship Jesus Christ, come bow down before the lamb who was slain. And that means we need to go and tell we need to go and share the good news of what Jesus has done. And Psalm 96 would have stood out as this powerful reminder to the people of Israel that their original mission, the mission given to Abraham, is that the whole world would be blessed through him and his family. You see, Israel was often tempted towards being insular and feeling superior to Gentiles, feeling superior to those outside the community of faith. And I think even though 99% of us probably in this room are Gentiles, we can have the same problem in the church. We can become insular 
And we, be, we can become uh, so focused on ourselves and, and view ourselves as superior to those who aren't Christians or superior to those who are outside the church. And you see, I think what we've missed is this key component to verse 9. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. That phrase could be translated in holy attire. Why can we come into the presence of the Lord and worship him? Why can we sinners be welcomed into the presence of a holy God? What makes us worthy to come near to him? It's not our righteousness. It's not our goodness. It's not our faithfulness. It's the righteousness of Christ that he has wrapped us in his holiness, his righteousness. We stand before the Lord with his merits, not our own. You see, I think what so often actually keeps us from sharing the gospel is really a misunderstanding of one of the foundational teachings of the gospel, that God loves you not because of who you are, but because of who he is. When we think that God loves us because of who we are, we become self-obsessed. We become so concerned about what we're doing, our performance, how we maintain God's law, how we live a good life, and we show God that we're good people. And one of two extremes shows up in our life. Either we feel like we're doing a really bad job, and so we're anxiously self-consumed, always worried about how we're not good enough before God, or we become arrogantly self-consumed, thinking we're better than other people because we live a good life and they're sinful bad people. And this is exactly what God wants to snuff out in Psalm 96. He is telling the Israelites clearly he wants all the nations to hear his salvation. He wants everyone to come in, not because they are good, not because they deserve it, but because he is gracious and loving. I love how it's expressed in Deuteronomy. Right in the, the beginning of the Bible in the Pentateuch, God tells his people, I don't love you because of you. I love you because of who I am. In Deuteronomy 7, he tells the people of Israel, do not say to yourself, we were chosen out of all the nations of the earth because we were great. No, you were actually very few. And then in Deuteronomy 8, he says, do not tell yourself that you are rich because you are powerful. Remember that I gave you all your power. And in Deuteronomy 9, he says, do not think to yourself, I've given you the promised land because you are righteous. You're not righteous. You're a stubborn, sinful people. Right at the beginning of the Bible, what is God saying? I don't love you because you, I love you because of me. I love the unlovely. That's what God is saying. God's grace is precisely for those who don't deserve it. And if that is not settled in your heart, you will either be really anxious or arrogantly prideful. You will be consumed with yourself. You will not delight to share the salvation of Jesus Christ with the world because you're just thinking about you. And so notice in our text how simple evangelism actually is. We overcomplicate it. We make it about eloquent speech and, and, and complicated proofs. And according to Psalm 96, evangelism is just sharing what the Lord has done for you. Exactly what Esther said. Sharing your testimony telling of his salvation, telling of his marvelous works, blessing his name because he is great. Is that how you approach evangelism? Or are you caught up with yourself, anxiously worried about your performance or looking down your nose at others who aren't as good as you? Remember the gospel. 
remember that it is the Lord who clothes us with righteousness and makes us worthy to come into his presence. That gospel message needs to go to the ends of the earth. Look one more time at our text, verses 11 through 13. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that, is, that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. The first thing we see in our text is we worship God because he's the only one who saves. Secondly, we worship God because the ends of the earth need to hear of his salvation. And third, we worship God because he is our coming hope. You hear that all creation worships God because he comes. The heavens and the earth, the field and the seas and all the animals in them, the trees that people even use to make idols, false gods, the trees are worshiping God. Why? Because he comes to judge. And that tells us something about the judgment of God that we often don't pay attention to. We often think of the judgment of God strictly in judicial terms, that God is going to come and he's going to declare some innocent because they have put their faith in Jesus Christ and some will be declared guilty. And then he will pass a sentence. They will be sent to hell, the devil, all the demons and all those who refuse to bow their knee to Jesus Christ as Lord will be punished. And that's what we think of. And that's absolutely true. And the judgment of God is so much more than that. It's the restoration of all the earth. Don't you hear it in the joyful singing of the trees in the fields? We see in in Psalm 96, the inverse of a more famous passage, Romans 8. We know that all creation is groaning with pains of childbirth for the freedom of the children of God to be revealed in the world. And here in Psalm 96, you see what that'll look like. All creation will praise God, will sing out with joy because all things are about to be set right. All things that were broken will be healed. All things that were corrupted by sin will be purified. All sadness will be undone because Jesus Christ is coming to judge the world. He's coming in his righteousness. Pastor Tim has said on multiple occasions, the phrase, so heavenly minded as to be of no earthly good is completely backwards. The reason actually we're often no earthly good is because we're not heavenly minded enough. We do not have the second coming of Jesus Christ as this glorious vision for our future that shapes everything we do today. The late Tim Keller often said, the hope of Jesus Christ's return makes us the greatest optimists and the greatest pessimists the world has seen at the same time. We're pessimistic because we look at the world and all of its brokenness and ugliness and we say, nothing can fix this except for Jesus Christ. Nothing will ever take away all of our hurts and our pains and our sorrows and our sufferings except the return of our Lord. And so we don't put our hope in human projects. We don't put our hope in political campaigns. We don't put our hope in scientific progress. We don't put our hope in any human effort towards utopia. It can't fix us. We're pessimists. But at the same time, because we know that Jesus Christ is coming again, that Jesus Christ will wipe away every tear, he will heal every illness, he will even undo death itself, he will swallow up death with victory, 
We are the greatest optimists the world has ever seen. We know that there's nothing we put our hands to that God can't fill with supernatural power and meaning to transform lives. We know that God is in the work of restoring all things. And so we are more optimistic than anyone else in creation either. You see, one of the greatest problems facing us, one of the reasons to go back to my introduction that we often experience sorrow and anxiety and fear unnecessarily is because we do not have this glorious future in our minds and our hearts. We do not have this hope giving us clarity for today. And we are not singing God's praise that even though today is dark, today is painful, today looks bleak, there is an unshakable hope. Jesus Christ is coming again. The light of the world entered our darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. If there's one message the Psalms make clear above everything else, it's that we were made to praise God. You were made to worship him. And so I don't know what's keeping you from God's praise today. I don't know what idols have captured your heart, your your mind, taken your affections and your attention, but you need to know they can't save you from your problems. Only Jesus Christ can save you. Return to him. Tell yourself the gospel again. Tell yourself the gospel every day. That is how you will find true joy. And I don't know if you are self-consumed anxiously because you feel like you're not doing enough or arrogantly because you think you're better than everybody else. But you need to get unconsumed with yourself. You need to be consumed with others. And the only way that's going to happen is if you understand the grace of God is precisely for those who don't deserve it. God loves you not because of who you are, but because of who he is. That is going to expand your love for the whole world. And I don't know if you feel hopeless or empty or frustrated or anxious this morning, but your hope is not in better circumstances. Your hope is in Jesus Christ coming again. When we will sing, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Because he has swallowed up death with his resurrection life. That is how you will restore your hope. So sing to the Lord, worship his name, sing him a new song and see how your joy is multiplied, how your love is expanded, how your hope is restored. Worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are so many of us who are caught up in our problems, in our pains, in our sorrows, looking to idols to save us, looking to false gods that cannot help us, And we are not turning our eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, free us. Free us from the the temptation towards idolatry. Free us from thinking that if I just am consumed with myself, if I take care of myself, then I'll be happy instead of finding ourselves swept up in your glory. Lord, that is when we are truly happy when we love you and we worship you and we praise you for all your goodness. Lord, help us to sing a new song today that we might see joy and love and hope multiplied. Give us a sight of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name we pray, amen.